0: Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning, and let us open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter five. Ephesians chapter five. It's a brand new year, and uh, but uh, nothing really changes. Uh, we keep doing what we do. We keep doing what we do. It's just a different Sunday. Ephesians five. This morning we are looking at verses 31, 32, and 33. And I will read God's word in your hearing. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let us pray together. Father, at this hour, we need your help, we need the guidance and the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. May Christ be exalted in our thoughts, in our affections. And Father, we pray that uh, as a result of this time together, we will be more like your son, the Lord Jesus. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, several Sundays ago, when I was preaching on chapter 5 of Ephesians, verse 15, I argued that what Paul was doing Or is doing in the second half of chapter 5 is he's calling us to walk in wisdom. That's according to verse 15. And he began his call by explaining wisdom in very general terms. General terms. But then, beginning in verse 22 of chapter 5, Paul begins to apply wisdom to specific human relationships. And the very first relationship he addresses is probably the most important of all, and that is marriage, marriage. But he started by focusing on the individual, the wife and the husband. But let me just say this, at least in my very, very humble, humble opinion. These are possibly the most important words Paul has to say about marriage, And I make that statement even after covering all the previous verses, as massively important as they were, it is my sincere opinion that you would be hard-pressed to find weightier and more consequential words in all of Scripture that specifically address the issue of marriage. Let me put it like this. A deep understanding of these three verses we just read could strengthen a marriage almost like nothing else could in this world. There is no better counseling for marriage. What Paul says in these few words is hard to compare to anything else you could read or hear about marriage anywhere else. So a careful pondering of these Holy Spirit inspired words can and should revive and renew and empower our marriages. Hopefully this will be true of our marriages here in our church, at least to some degree by the time we are done with our considerations for this morning. The layout for today is very simple. I will ask three questions of these three verses And then we will finish by looking at some insights from a theologian of the past who did a masterful job at finding connections that bring marriage and the gospel together. So let me give you the first question. Very simple. What is marriage? You didn't see it coming, huh? What is marriage? Now, if this question strikes you as too basic for consideration, I would agree. I would agree. It is a basic question. After all, no institution seems to be more obvious than the institution of marriage. Why? Because it is really difficult to argue with the way things are, isn't it? This is what I mean. The complementarity that exists between a man and a woman is so obvious, is so obvious That the only way you can miss it is by suppressing it or hiding it under the cover of unnatural and disordered desires. So marriage is the union between one man and one woman. It's shocking, isn't it? It is the union between one man. And one woman. That is it. Moreover, I want to be clear this definition is not the product of a politically conservative bias on my part. This is the only definition of marriage because no other definition is possible. And it is absolutely astonishing to me that we have come to a place in human history where this needs to be clarified. It is mind-blowing. There was no confusion in the mind of the Apostle Paul, however. His words are crystal clear. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. A man and his wife wife that is marriage and that is the truth about marriage in every city in new york city and in california and in every state and in every city whether in liberal or conservative circles the surroundings or the context are absolutely inconsequential marriage is and will always be the union between one man and one woman period there is no such thing as homosexual marriage It doesn't exist. And the ongoing efforts by political leaders and judges to redefine marriage are all futile. And ultimately, any and every political decision that encourages a redefinition of marriage is hateful and it is evil. Listen, this is not about being bold. I'm not being bold. I'm being truthful. Nothing has done more damage to our society than this attempt at redefining this sacred union between one man and one woman. And we as believers in Christ and as lovers of the truth must stand firm against the evil currents of our day. We must insist on this and never give in to the pressures coming from the world. Why? For the simple reason that in an ultimate sense, marriage is a gospel issue. It is a gospel issue. That marriage is a union between one man and one woman speaks to the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you compromise on your views of marriage because of the pressures of the world, you are compromising on the very gospel itself. Therefore, it is truly of utmost importance that we define our terms. And yes, this does speak even into politics. I've said this before, but I must say it again. We must ask and we must pray for leaders who will uphold a biblical view of marriage. If you are a Christian, this is your responsibility. And I hope to show you toward the end of the sermon that marriage is without a doubt a gospel issue but I will say more about that later on. Let's move on to the second question. The second question is, this. so the first question is, what is the first question? What is marriage? And we know the definition, right? The union between a man and a woman. What does marriage do? That is the second question. What does marriage do? Consider verse 31. Again, therefore, a man shall do what? Leave his father and mother. This is the first thing that marriage does letter a, it demands a relational restructuring. It demands a relational restructuring. I won't say much about this particular aspect of marriage, but I do want to point out one essential element of it that if left unsaid can be dangerously misinterpreted. When Paul says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, The Greek word that he uses for leave could be translated in several different ways. It could be translated as to forsake. That's a possibility, to forsake, to abandon, to leave behind, and even to cease to care for. To cease to care for. But interestingly enough, all the translations that I read this week, all the Bible translations chose the softer word leave rather than the stronger words, abandon or forsake. Why? Because both the immediate and the overall context of the Bible demand this translation, that we use the word leave, rather than the stronger words to abandon or to forsake. When read within its proper context, this word, in fact, is the perfect word to explain what marriage demands, but also what marriage prohibits. In other words, what Paul conveys by using that single word is that marriage does demand a relational restructuring, but it prohibits relational abandonment. It is just the perfect word. It is a strong word enough, strong enough to clearly communicate that a man and his wife have entered into a new realm of relational priorities but it is also soft enough to remind both husband and wife that their duty to honor their parents has not ceased. It is the perfect word. This is why I want you to understand the word leave as a call to relational restructure in that the priorities do change, but not as a call to relational abandonment as though our duties to our parents have somewhat or somehow ceased. Now this will become clear when we get to chapter six verses one and two. So I will, that's all I will say this morning, but this leads us into uh, a third aspect of this. Why does marriage demand such relational restructuring that a man leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife? Why does that? Why is that demand? Well, consider what it says afterwards. It says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Here's letter B. What does marriage do? Letter B, it creates a blessed union. It creates a blessed union. Now, the language that Paul uses here, especially the expression to hold fast, to hold fast, is an expression that interestingly enough was used by Moses to explain the relationship between Israel and who? God. Israel and God on several occasions. The Lord said to his people to hold fast to him. For instance, right after the second giving of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 20, the Lord says to Israel, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve, serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name, you shall swear a chapter later in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 22, we read for, if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord, your God walking in all his ways and holding fast to him. Then the Lord will drive out all these nations. How interesting to find the Apostle Paul using this type of language when he speaks about marriage. It seems as though Paul wants to send a message. What is the message he's seeking to send? That even from the beginning, from ancient times all the way back to Moses, the Lord has presented himself. How? As the groom that persistently calls his people to himself as a husband calls his own wife. Himself. Now, the expression hold fast is in and of itself quite interesting. It is actually very extreme in nature. Hold fast, to hold fast. In a literal sense, the expression to hold fast means to glue upon or to be glued to something. It is the word proskolao, which comes from the word kola, which means glue. I was personally interested in that word because uh, all my time growing up in Chile, that's the word we use for glue, cola. And if you go to Guatemala, that's what the children use, the cola for glue. It only took me 38 years to figure out that it came from the Greek. But this is a very important word. It talks about being glued, it is the same word that is used in the book of Acts, chapter 5, verse 36 to speak about an, a man named Thudas, or Thutas and his followers. It says that they were literally glued to him. This reminded me of those cults in which the, the people are so enthralled. They're so mesmerized by their charismatic leader that they would rather die or live separate lives from normal society than to lose their intimate association with their leader. This is the sense of the word hold fast. And hence the reason why Paul uses it of all the relationships a man may have in this world. His relationship to his wife is unique in that he is glued to her and therefore he cannot be glued to any other relationship. Parents and even children must take a secondary place. Such is the intimacy of the marriage union between a man and a woman. But at this juncture, I need to point out something very important about the expression hold fast. When Paul says that the man needs to hold fast to his wife, you need to know the following truth. Paul wrote not in the imperative mood, but guess what? You know the other word, right? He wrote in the indicative mood. Isn't that interesting? He did not write in the imperative mood. He wrote in the indicative mood. Why is that important? Well, for the simple reason that Paul, when he says that the man needs to hold fast to his wife, he's not issuing a command for the man to hold fast to his wife. Rather, Paul is stating a fact concerning the man and his wife. He's stating a fact. The man is glued to his wife, whether you like it or not. That's the truth about you. You're glued to your wife. It is a fact. In other words, the apostle is not requesting that the man do something to hold fast to his wife. Instead, the apostle is calling the man to recognize that he already is glued to his wife and to recognize this fact. This leads us to Paul's next statement, which is that the man and the wife shall become one flesh. This is also written in the indicative rather than the imperative. So here's, here's something important for us to understand. The union between a man and a woman in marriage or what Paul calls the one flesh aspect of marriage is not an imperative that we must obey. Rather, it is an indicative that we must accept. You and your wife, you are one flesh. I don't care how you feel about it. You are one flesh. I say this because this distinction is of utmost importance. That a husband and a wife are one flesh is arguably the single most important truth that any married couple needs to believe and understand. Husbands and wives, please listen carefully to what I'm about to say. The key to a strong marriage does not only consist in performing certain actions that reflect submission and love. More importantly, still, the key to a strong marriage lies in the recognition of an established truth about your marital union. The strength of a marriage lies in the acknowledgement of a single spiritual reality. The man and the wife are now one flesh. But why is this union created? This leads us to our third question, which is this. Why does marriage exist? Why does marriage exist? Listen to verse 32, and then I'll give you the answer. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Why does marriage exist? Here's the answer to illustrate a greater reality. Marriage exists to illustrate a greater reality here. Then we are returning to what I said a few moments ago. Marriage is a gospel issue. Why? Because marriage in an ultimate sense does not exist as an end in and of itself. It is meant to do much more. Let me prove this to you. When Paul says this mystery is profound in verse 32, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Let me ask you this. What is the mystery to which he's referring? This mystery is profound. This mystery is profound. What is that mystery? I read through several commentaries, a lot of options out there. And I could have taken you into a journey to see all the suggested opinions and many of them sound very good. Let me just give you the one I believe is the proper one within this context. The mystery. The mystery in verse 32 is a reference to the one flesh union he mentioned in verse 31. The mystery is the one flesh union. Why is that a mystery? This is the mystery because it points to the greater union. Namely, the union between Christ And his church. So the mystery is not marriage itself. The mystery is that through the marriage union, God is teaching us what he has done for us in Christ. That is the mystery. That the eternal plan, which was hidden for ages, has now been revealed. Namely, that those who believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and trust in his death and resurrection are joined to him in an eternal union. This is precisely how Paul has used the word mystery already in chapter 3, verse 6. Listen to chapter 3, verse 6. Paul says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That is the mystery. The same is true here. The mystery is the reality to which physical marriage points. And just as the wife is joined to the husband and the husband to the wife in one flesh, when they both say, I do so too the believer is joined to Christ in perfect union when he or she believes. And this is an eternal union far better and more perfect than the marital one. This is why marriage matters. And this is why the marriage between one man and one woman matters. If you redefine it, you distort the very reality. It was meant to represent The purpose for which marriage was instituted by God transcends any cultural trends, any Supreme Court decisions, any sexual preference, and any earthly opinion. This is why Paul says that this is a mystery and it is profound. It transcends everything that is human. So here's a wonderful truth for you and I to ponder upon and to do so continually. We enter into the marriage union not primarily so that the wife can submit or the husband can love, but in order to illustrate the greatest reality of all, namely the union between Christ and his bride. Brothers and sisters, there is no higher purpose for marriage. Your marriage is a physical union that serves to illustrate the greatest spiritual reality in the entire universe. The marriage union is not an end in and of itself. Rather, the marriage union is a means that serves to point to the end, namely the eternal union of Christ and his bride, the church. In fact, I would even say that the marriage between a man and a woman was instituted for that very purpose. It was meant to be a picture from the beginning. Yes, it is for the flourishing of humankind, Yes, it is for reproduction. Yes, it is for our enjoyment. All that is true. But ultimately, marriage is a picture. It is an illustration. It points forward to the end of all things. And from this, I have two implications to give you. Just two implications. Here's the first one. Earthly marriage between a man and a woman will eventually give way to the heavenly marriage between Christ and his church. It will give way to the heavenly marriage between Christ and his church. Since, since earthly marriage is not an end in and of itself, we know that it won't last forever. It won't last forever. Just as the pictures and shadows in the old Testament eventually had to give way to the substance, which is Christ. So to earthly marriage. Is a picture, it is a type, is a shadow that will eventually dissolve when the reality appears and Christ Jesus takes his bride to be with himself forever. Here's the second implication. Listen to this one. The spiritual reality that marriage illustrates, the spiritual reality that marriage illustrates is the greatest motivation for marital faithfulness and for the joyful fulfillment of our individual roles is the greatest motivation. If you have been paying attention to the apostle Paul, you have noticed that Paul anchors everything he says about marriage, both to wives and husbands. He anchors everything Upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He says nothing about marriage in isolation from the Lord, but everything in direct connection to him. Why does he do that? He does that because this is what marriage is all about. Marriage is about understanding that this union between the wife and the husband serves a greater purpose. And that marriage is not an end in itself, but only a tool that points to something much greater, much better, and much more beautiful and truly lasting. So, when Paul says in verse 33, and basically reiterates his initial call to love and submission respectively, he's simply adding a conclusion that naturally flows out of the spiritual reality he just mentioned in verse 32. Let me put it this way the wife submits to her husband out of an understanding that her life as a wife is subservient and points to something greater, namely the church. And the husband loves his wife out of an understanding that his life as a husband is also subservient and points to something greater, namely Christ Jesus. Here's the bottom line. Your marriage, your marriage with all its challenges, with all its pains, with all its sorrows, and with all its ups and downs, your marriage has cosmic significance your marriage. Yes. Your marriage is a mini picture of the greatest truth ever known to man. A truth so powerful that it stands at the back of the very creation of the universe. Therefore, you must treasure your marriage as a sacred bond, never to be defiled or corrupted. Husbands and wives, we have the greatest responsibility on earth. You know what that is? We have the greatest responsibility on earth, namely to conduct our lives within marriage in such a way that it stands as a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have no higher calling. I can guarantee you this. I cannot guarantee you many things, but I can guarantee you this. If you, as husbands and wife, if you spend the rest of your lives asking yourselves, how can we best illustrate the gospel through our marriage? If you spend the rest of your life asking yourself that question, you will enjoy the blessing of a strong marriage. You will enjoy the blessing of a strong marriage. In light of this, let me bring this to a close by sharing some insights I found in the writings of Horatius Bonner. as he meditated on Ephesians 5:31, and in particular, as he meditated on that direct quote from Genesis 2:24, he saw the following parallels between the creation account of marriage and Paul's account. Hopefully this will be a a blessing to you as we try to uh, bridge and bring the Old Testament and the New Testament together as we look through the eyes of biblical theology. Consider this, Adam in the garden was put to sleep. And out of his sleep, what did God do? God created Eve. Jesus was put to death and out of his death came forth the church. What an amazing truth, isn't it? It was necessary that Adam be put to sleep in the garden in order to bring forth Eve. Likewise, it was necessary that Jesus be put to death on the cross in order to bring forth his bride, the church. Such is his love for her. Consider this, Adam's wound to remove his rib was deep but God closed it and no pain came afterward but only joy in Eve likewise Jesus's wound to destroy sin was deeper still but his resurrection erased the pain and now his joy is in his church forever consider this when God created Eve the process of her creation is described with the word built Did you know that Eve was built out of Adam? It doesn't say created. It was built. Do you remember the words of Jesus to Peter? And I will build my church. I will build my church. Consider this. Eve was recognized by Adam as flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones. Likewise, Jesus recognizes his church as his own body. And we as believers in the Lord Jesus, we are members of the Lord, one with him, joined to him in eternal union. Let me just say this. Let me point you back. Let me take you back to that little word in verse 31. The first word, therefore, therefore. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That is a direct quote out of Genesis chapter two, verse 24. It is the exact same wording. Therefore, but I can argue this morning that the therefore in Ephesians chapter five, verse 31 is deeper than the one in Genesis is deeper because in Ephesians 5, 31, the therefore comes after the recognition that we are members of the body of Christ flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones that we're one with the Lord. Such is the intimacy of our union with Christ. Consider this Eve was presented to Adam and he rejoiced in her. Likewise, at the appointed time, the church will be presented to Christ in splendor and he will rejoice in her Forever. And finally, Eve was God's gift to Adam. And guess what? The church is God's gift to his son. You are a gift to Christ. Oh, the mystery of marriage. What a privilege and what a joy and what a responsibility. About 10 years ago, while I was pastoring in another state far away from here. I was sitting in my office and the phone rang. On the other side of the line, there was a lady. I knew exactly who she was. Her voice was deeply broken. Without saying hello, she simply said, I am desperate, I don't know what to do. My husband of 48 years, got up this morning, collected some of his things, looked at me and said, I'm leaving you. I've had enough of you. And he left. I knew the man very well. In fact, I knew him because he was an elder at that church. So here's the question. Why did he do that? After 48 years of marriage, I believe he failed to understand this. That marriage was not ultimately about him, but about something much, much greater than his own little world. This man managed to create in his own mind an image of marriage that was primarily based on the self rather than on Christ. And likely he spent 48 years of his life feeding this dangerous lie. But a gospel-centered marriage will remain strong because both the wife and the husband understand that their faithfulness to one another will always be motivated by the greatest truth and the greatest love ever known to man, namely the love of Christ for his church. This is all you need to know. Christ loved the church. Spend the rest of your life seeking to know what that means. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for this imperfect, on my part, yet timely reminder. We know that your word is perfect and true. And we thank you, Father, for we all need this reminder that ultimately our marriages are a picture of the greatest reality of all, the love of Christ for his church. Help us to know what this means and how to apply this to our daily lives. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.